Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Adam Rumpenkamp from Cumberland, Maryland. Adam will get a marathon decal showing he watched 26.2 hours of his favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and June Thomas, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it, Law & Order, Law & Order. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at SVU Season 2, Episode 8, Taken. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. How are you today? So far... So good. <laughs> it's family friendly down here in the studio. It is. It is. Because rounding out our panel is your special guest, the co-host of the podcast Slate's Double X Gab Fest, June Thomas. Hello, June. Hello, Mr. Kevin Flynn. I can't believe now I've got two Slate podcasters. I know. You intimidated yeah. or what? Yes, I know. <laughs> feeling left out? I feel, yeah, I'm feeling a little left out. <laughs> and guess what? You're probably not going to be invited on the Double X Gab Fest anytime soon. I think that's all ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Usually. If there's, the, if there's the XY Gab Fest. <laughs> That's called life, Kevin. That's called life, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, June, you've been with Slate for quite a while, and you've been writing on different topics, usually on television, and you got dibs on Law & Order. That was your beat. So That's right. How'd you get that beat? Was it drawing straws? or? <laughs> no, I love television, and I have always been a massive Law & Order fan. And actually, when we started Culture Box, now a long time ago, which is Slate's culture blog, we were kind of looking for, you know, regular beats that you can go back to. And I was really fascinated by where the stories from Law & Order come from. You know, that's a that's an urge that you can relate to. So yeah. every week I used to do a little sort of rundown of what, what the actual cases were. Only that was the final season of Law & Order. And they were really, really messing around with the timetable and reruns. And it was just like they were slowly killing that show by their own actions. So uh -huh. it, it was like it was actually a huge amount of work just trying to find out when the episode was going to air and what episode it was going to be. But I loved that assignment. Now, we've often debated whether the episodes are better when the plot points closely mirror those real crime details or whether... They use a familiar crime as a writing prompt and go into a whole different yeah. direction. What do you think? I think it's good when there's a, an air of familiarity so that when you're watching, you think, oh, I know where that's going. But then they 
bluff, double bluff you and they go in a different direction or where they do like a super mighty morphin story and they maybe combine like two or three (laughs) stories. That's my absolute favorite. And I have to say, I think that, you know, this most recent season of uh, Law and Order SVU, which had a new showrunner, like you could tell that it was much more straightforward. Like it rarely double crossed. And it was to me that was not a very successful season, I think, because of that. Now, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Well, there is only one true cop, and that's the one LT, Anita Van Buren. <laughs> but when it comes to a combination, I'm afraid I'm very predictable. And I like Lenny Briscoe, the great Jerry Orbach, with Ed Green. Mm-hmm. Because I loved how they started Ed Green with this like huge backstory about all his addictions and you know his what was going on. And then they just forgot yeah. about it after about three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, Lenny and Ed have adventures. Yeah, totally unnecessary for that guy to have backstory. It really is. He's just so charming. <laughs> or as Rebecca yeah, likes to totally. say, he's gorgeous. Gorgeous, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> June, who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. My favorite prosecutorial team is Jack McCoy and Serena Sutherland, who was in pretty much every respect a pretty terrible ADA or AADA. <laughs> But that final line is one of the greatest switcheroos in television history. You're fired. Is this because I'm a lesbian? No, Serena, because we had no idea you were a lesbian <laughs> ever, ever, ever. But it did get me to any time I see a Serena Sutherland episode, I will watch it with like absolutely rapt attention, trying to find some clue that they were, you know, dropping yeah. uh, breadcrumbs. They never dropped any breadcrumbs. That was an idea they had like the day that that thing filmed, I think. There was, there was one episode where like this sleazy defense guy like asks her to lunch. And she, like, turns him down. You can definitely tell it isn't like she's about to say, well, I'm playing for the other team. <laughs> right. It's just like everybody could just go, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have dinner with him either. And also what's weird about that firing scene, you know, the reason that Fred Thompson gives her for firing her is that she gets too emotionally involved and she should be an advocate uh, kind of lawyer. not. Yeah. But it's like... She wasn't that particularly that excited about this case. It's not like it's not like it was like a child murder. It was just like a regular case, and something just kind of pissed her off about it. The whole thing just rang so strangely. But but you really yeah. like this character. Um, no, she's no. not very good. I just it's just as a lesbian, I love to see any representation of lesbians on television. It is my dream to be on Jeopardy and have one of the categories be played a lesbian in film or television. <laughs> And it's like, now we have to include Elizabeth Rome just for like this completely invented last minute switcheroo. Uh, so, but she was a lesbian know. for 30 seconds. <laughs> That's right. For 30 whole seconds. Now, let's take a look at the first half of this episode, SVU Season 2, Episode 8, Taken. There's a party going on right here. It's to celebrate the opening of Thorpe Palace. <laughs> Proclaimed as New York's first five-star family hotel. And it's the first because a real five-star family hotel is one with no kids. (laughs) Just then, a young woman named Siobhan stumbles off the elevator, bloodied and battered, saying she'd been raped in her room. A desk clerk named Terry ushers her away from the party and into the Thorpe litigation-averse apparatus. We contacted you immediately. No, you took time to pull strings. I assure you. No one associated with the Thorpe Hotel Corporation has knowingly obstructed justice. An attorney? You got an attorney here before, medical assistance of the police. Can you tell me what happened? I went into my room 
I tried to run out and he slammed my face against the door. Siobhan, her long-lost brother, and his family have been vacationing at Thorpe Palace. A party-goer who looks a lot like Ace Ventura is spotted dancing like an idiot on security footage. <laughs> Russell Ramsey has a statutory rape conviction on his sheet and his fingerprints on Siobhan's room. Ramsey says he had been on a date with the girl, and that's why his little guys are all over her hotel room. Meantime, Craigan tells Olivia her mother has died. She's fallen down subway stairs after stumbling out of a bar. Olivia is shaken, but refuses to take time off and throws herself back into the case. Siobhan picks Ramsey from a lineup, and he's sent to Rikers, but Munch feels something is off. Reviewing the video, they notice Terry, the desk clerk, has been waiting by the elevator and was making eyes with Ramsey. Plus, Terry suddenly quit the Thorpe Palace job. They go to his previous employer only to learn he'd never worked there and stole the name of another desk clerk to use as an alias. So, a lot going on in the start. June, we have a New York billionaire hotel magnate who refers to himself in the third person. Who is this supposed mm. to be? <laughs> I have no idea. And I had forgotten this. I, I mean, I must have seen it years ago. I'd forgotten all about it. When Mr. Thorpe appeared, I was like, Oh, that's disappointing. They're not making any effort to make him be like a familiar hotelier who uses his name in his hotels. Uh, you know, the guy was actually really articulate. He had a beard, which obviously <laughs> means that he couldn't possibly be a certain person. <laughs> his fingers were pretty long. But, but then, of course, later in the episode, my, my sort of annoyance was dispelled because it was a little bit of a switcheroo. But, yeah, at first I was like, hmm. Thorpe yeah. Palace. Yeah, mm. it, it was it was pretty not too cleverly veiled reference to all mm-hmm. the Trump brands, and also yeah, even with the number the number of letters in the name, the logo of the T on mm. everything, like the gold plated everything, it, and it's really funny seeing this now. Because it just yes. feels so anachronistic and funny in like an unsettling <laughs> kind of way. I mean, there are yeah. a ton of Law and Order SVU episodes that have characters like Trump that are based on Donald Trump. Like this is not the only one, like by right. a long right. shot. Because he was a super New York centric character. He was a New York centric character right? with yeah. a big brand and you know a big you know a dominant brand in the city. You know, in a lot of addresses, tabloid figure. Yeah, yeah, and it was doing a lot of development in the city around the time that Law and Order, like the gentrification of New York in the nineties. Like Trump buildings were going up like left and right, you know, but like the whole thing was just weird. Uh, the other thing that was super weird about this cold open is um, the Big Bird dancing around, like that <laughs> fake Big Bird that was like clearly an off-brand Big Bird, yeah. just, you know, everywhere. He just came in from Times Square, although he didn't exist there for several <laughs> years. <laughs> Might have been where they got the idea. Today exactly. it would be like the weird Elmo. Yeah, they probably yeah. called Schmelmo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and everything in that whole dancing scene, like I mean, I get that like white people of a certain age dance weird but my god that dancing was so peculiar like does anybody (laughs) dance to music like that in that manner there was nothing about that that would be fun for adults or kids and it was relentless it was clearly not stopping the whole weekend was just going to be that yeah (laughs) yeah Munch meets the victim from Russell Ramsey's previous statutory rape conviction, and she says, okay, they were both young, it was a consensual relationship, and they're still together. So Munch goes into Cragen's office and complains. There should be a special level of hell for this pus-sucking, gangrenous malignancy of a mental amoeba. Somebody steal your parking space again? (sighs) Ramsey just sent in his first victim to defend him against his second. Explain to me how schmoes like us spend every night home alone watching the History Channel while a scum like Ramsey has this nice girl's complete devotion. 
Well, if there is any karma, Ramsey won't be doing much sitting down in Rikers. Yeah, rape cops, yeah. right? Yeah, now, yeah, yeah for an, el- exactly. an elite squad of sex crime detectives, they really are untroubled by the prospect of prison rape from episode to episode. Super untroubled by it in a way that, especially given what happens in the episode later, is like, I don't know if that was supposed to be like a penny drop, like we're supposed to sort of know, kind of gross. And this is this is sort of a trope in SVU. It's like anyone who's accused of a sex crime, they're an animal, like immediately. <laughs> like yeah. They cease to be a human being in any way. And like anything that happens to them, like they 100% deserve. And that was kind of upsetting, that little scene? Yeah, no, it totally wasn't. It really stood out as something given that, as you said, the cops of SVU are absolutely on victim's side. And yet here they were, even though he was a suspected perp, they're not on his side. They're on the side of the perpetrators. I thought it must be a kind of a clue, but I haven't spent as much time watching old episodes. And I know that it is always a bit shocking when we get examples of how attitudes have changed. I mean, certainly any time there's any transgender plot before the last maybe year or two, it's always a bit, oh, gosh, I don't want to watch this. So is it true that they tend to make jokes about prison rape? Do they have generally a bad attitude up to a few yeah, years ago? I don't, I don't totally. Know. No, I, yeah, think I, do. I don't think a lot of them are jokes, but like from if you go from franchise to franchise, in every third or fourth interrogation scene, the cops often use the specter of being assaulted in prison as, yeah. you know, the fate worse than death. They're going to love you at Rikers. Like, that's a thing that Elliot yeah. Stabler says. That's the thing we hear over and over again, right? Yeah. W- it's extra weird given Elliot Stabler's previous sentence in Oz. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I guess because he was a prison rapist, he knows all about it. True, him. true. Good point. Now we have uh, Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. June, can you name the actor who plays Russell Ramsey? Well, I don't know about naming him, but I did recognize him from having recently watched season five of House of Cards. And I know that he plays basically the Sean Spicer <laughs> of the of the Underwood White House. Um, but I didn't know. I don't know his name. He's not that particularly yeah. known to yeah, me. Yeah. The actor's name is Derek Cecil. Look, I'm guilty of bad judgment. All right. That's it. Siobhan propositioned me. I accept it. Now I get the crap beat out of me every day for it. You got to help me. Rape and battery of a minor. I can't sleep. I, I got to stay awake at night so I don't get ambushed. You're right. He's Seth on House of Cards. This is his first of four appearances in the Law & Order universe. Ooh, future repeat offender. Future repeat offender, yes. That's pretty exciting. Well, they killed him off the first time, so they keep bringing him back, maybe just with a different haircut. <laughs> it's true. It, well, speaking of haircuts, it was a really nice touch that on his mugshot, he had a really sketchy mustache. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't make him keep it for the actual episode, but I don't know if it was real or if it was Photoshop, but either way, it really did make you go, oh, that guy's a perp for sure. <laughs> like he had to come in and put on a little skinny like perv mustache just yeah. for that one photo yeah. they took. That was a day of acting, right? That was got, a whole day. He got paid yes. for that day. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We need you, before you get to the set, can you put this on your lip and then go stand by that wall because we need a prop later? Yeah. This is a real deep cut. Can anyone tell me the claim to fame of Craig Braun, who played Alan Thorpe, the billionaire? Uh, he played Alan Thorpe, the billionaire, in an episode of SVU. Uh, that... <laughs> My head of security will be handling that matter. He's at your disposal. I have guests waiting. That is part of his, uh, <laughs> yeah, his, his screen claim to fame. <laughs> but he and Andy Warhol 
designed the album cover for the Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers. And he, wow, the banana? Is that the banana? No, no, that's... that's it, well, Craig was the one who came up with that particular version of the lips and tongue logo, and that's oh the goodness. standard one for the band. So, I thought it was Tattoo You that had that, no? It's been featured in, in okay. several ones, but what the one that he did right. is now sort of like the official Coca-Cola version for the Rolling Stones. Well, that's random. How would we possibly know that from seeing him on an SVU episode? Well, doesn't he look like a conceptual artist? <laughs> you know, I got to say, for a for a billionaire, powerful hotelier, he looks like he'd be a really great graphic designer. <laughs> Speaking of photographs, please tell me that mm. you're going to ask us about that unbelievable scene where Ice T is photographing the hotel room where the assault allegedly occurred. <laughs> that was crazy. He already took pictures. Special interest case, powerful people involved, evidence tends to get lost. I mean, true enough, he's quite right to note that things do tend to go missing when, you know, whatever he said, famous people or important people or powerful people are involved. But yeah, that was so strange. That's not something he's ever done before, right? And also... I'm sure that it's against union rules. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. He, but, he was taking pictures like he was like the Ansel Adams of the crime scene. He was very fat. <laughs> he was sort of moving around quickly. And then he does that bizarre thing where he hands the camera to the other dude and asks him to take a photo of him and Munch standing together, <laughs> posing. Yeah. I so wanted that. Also, I guess that was before selfies. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's the, that's the like 2000 equivalent of a selfie. I yeah, guess. we're still we're still like five or six years away from MySpace. Right. And, and yes. then it was juxtaposed with that super straight, very, very clinical and explicit hospital scene where they're running down all the evidence in the rape kit, which is like very old school back when SVU was trying to be like a serious crime show. And then you have like Abbott and Costello posing for pictures in the room. It's very strange. I also love this. It's great when Finn is like in his I only wear bespoke tailor clothes. (laughs) Because like that suit, I mean, it was a gorgeous suit, although it seemed like it was a bit like more suitable for a shooting party, you know, in the shires. Now, there is an important milestone in a character's development here. Olivia's reaction to her mother's sudden death. Your mother had an accident. I am so sorry. She didn't make it. How? She fell uh, down the subway steps, 110th and Broadway. No. My mother never takes the subway. The entrance outside the velvet room. She was drunk. Now, we know that Olivia was the child of a rape, and her mother abused her growing up. June, wasn't this kind of backstory development unique to the SVU franchise as compared to original recipe Law and Order? Yeah, I mean, as I kind of mentioned before, I think the tiny little elements of backstory that they used to give the cops or sometimes the, the legal team were so small and they usually seem to hinge on addictions and, and worries about addictions. And that hasn't changed. I mean, so many of the cops, that is the only thing we know about their lives before they came to the precinct. But when you watch them out of order, as we all do now, it just felt so strange. It was such a peculiar piece of information and such a peculiar reaction. And I know we were supposed to think that the reaction was odd, but that was really freaky. It was. And it made freakier by the fact that she got the news from her boss. I mean, I know he's a cop, right? So he probably heard it from another Mm. cop. But like... Yeah, well, if she were a plumber, a cop would come and tell her. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. But this is also, I mean, 
All right. I'm just going to say it because I feel like it's something we've never talked about in the show. Like this is the era of like skinny Olivia, right? There was yeah. like, there and, was like. And, and with the gamine haircut too. Yes. Yes. I mean, Olivia Benson, when the show first came on, like she was coming off of her stint on ER and she definitely had that like TV actress kind of like look. And then over time, she has morphed uh, as both a person and as a character into a more like, I think, relatable, warm looking, mm-hmm. softer looking person. And this this whole scene to me, it's like it's sort of like a throwaway thing to, oh, she's so tough. She just is addicted to her job. She can't ever have any feelings. She just wants to stuff it all down deep. And we're just supposed to, as a viewer, like accept all that and then bake it into her character immediately and like and, and just like know that that's part of her going forward. But none of the other characters are burdened with that bullshit at this point in the season. Yeah, and it's yeah. just it just strikes me as being like so weird that you'd have like the one like female character on the show is the one who has to have all of this baggage being told by her male boss being like supported by her male colleagues you should really be home Olivia no I want to be here and like they continue to, it's like I don't know it just feels very like TV hack like, yeah Stapler doesn't get like his family drama stuff sort of develop sort of later on right. in the series and if you go on the uh, the interwebs there are big fans of Olivia Benson. And I I think they all understand that she's a fictional character. <laughs> that she I don't real. think she understands that she's a fictional but, right, character. Yeah. She testifies in Congress about rape now. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm not really a cop, but I play one on TV. <laughs> a- and I think there's a lot of people that they see Olivia Benson as their champion on television, especially if they're advocates or they're uh, survivors of abuse, and that she is that one strong figure on television that not only have we seen grow, but sort of claims that mantle. And not just because she decides that she's going to run the show, but because she does have this backstory where she has you know this in her background and it's personal for her. And I think that's one of the reasons why, not just the fact that she's on SVU. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very strange, stipulated. It was weird that Cragen was the one that seemed to be more affected by it. I mean, <laughs> I think we are supposed to like remember, oh, yeah, he's an alcoholic. He's kind of persuading her that it happened because her mother was drunk, whereas she seems to be almost like maybe sowing a seed of some kind of conspiracy like, my mother would never go there. My mother doesn't ride the subway. And he's like, no, she was drinking. Ultimately, it kind of seemed like not only does it serve this not terribly convincing and, as you say, totally hack and slightly annoying backstory, but also to explain why Stabler and Benson just weren't involved that much this episode. I mean, live a little bit more than Elliot, but Elliot was kind of just a shadow this episode. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. Can I just say as an aside that I like it when Munch still has to be an asshole correcting everybody's grammar. (laughs) Yes, yes. What you're inferring is preposterous. Implying. You did infer what he implied. But on the bright side, you did infer correctly. You know what? As somebody even many, many years ago in the the 20th century, I was a copy editor, but I've still always had problems with that particular imply, infer. And I want to just like tape it and and play it to myself when when I'm confused about that. That was like super efficient and really useful. Thanks, Dr. Grammar Cop Munch. <laughs> I always wonder how much how much of that he's just like, you know, ad-libbing because he's like giving the, the writer's shit like while they're shooting the scene and how much of it is like written into the character. <laughs> you know, though, I, I once went to a set visit at SVU and I think we, you know, asked them questions about like, you know, do they ad-lib, especially Ice tea, but basically all of them said, we don't do anything. We read the lines and we just say them out loud because they do so many episodes and yeah. they just they just can't really 
get involved on that level, according to them. Good to know. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now, let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Ramsey is getting beat up in prison and proclaims his innocence. He says he wasn't working with Terry, the desk clerk, who we now know is Kyle. Meantime, Siobhan's brother, Bo, is suing Thorpe for $10 million, and he seems ready to pay the demand. Olivia, still wearing the clothes from her mother's 15-minute funeral, (laughs) visits Siobhan at the hotel. When the phone rings in the other room, she overhears Siobhan arguing over her cut of the settlement money and everything that she went through to get it. When they learn that the fake desk clerk is also the victim's cousin, SVU suspects the family is running a scam on the billionaire. We move Siobhan from victim to perp. Along with her brother, Bo Miller, a.k.a. Clayton Farnsworth, forgery and fraud. Married to Patricia Ann Miller. The bloody print we found on the adjoining door we thought was Ramsey. Patricia Ann. Not to mention our phony desk clerk, Kyle Kivlihan. A.k.a. Terry Wilde, Michael Berkman. Who we now know to be Bo Miller's second cousin. Which also makes him Siobhan's cousin. Yes. One big happy family of grifters. We see Craig and go deep undercover <laughs> as a hotel accountant. <laughs> as soon as the grifters accept the check, they're all busted for extortion. Siobhan quickly flips on her kin, who she says forced her to take part. The plan was to lure Ramsey to her room for sex and get his DNA. Then her sister-in-law beat her with a phone to make it look good. Meantime, the rest of the family says Siobhan was the mastermind. Munch tries to use her testimony to spring Ramsey, but the innocent man was killed in Rikers before he could be released. So, June, when they were doing that scene where they're rearranging the photos of who's in on the con and who's not, were you like me and unable to figure out all of a sudden what the hell's going on? (laughs) I knew exactly what had gone on, yeah. 
And I, I, I suddenly saw everything. Everything uh, spooled out before me and I was just like, well, let me just see how right I am. And I was pretty much completely right. She had a beautiful mind moment, right? There were numbers swirling around her Exactly. Head. I really did. And, and I was, was like, oh my God, I've got to get one of these Homeland walls because you can see everything once you've got stuff on the wall. <laughs> That's the only way we can figure out the crime. I have to see it vertically, please. That's right. That's right. And exactly. it wasn't a fancy PowerPoint. It was actually just like pictures on a board, right? This was before the PowerPoint. Yeah, I like the now, pre-PowerPoint today, stuff. Yeah. It would be moving around and all of a sudden, like, her photo would change from like green to orange right. or something. That's right. Morning. Because Rollins always takes a lot of time preparing those PowerPoints <laughs> before she makes the presentation to the team, right? Yeah, well, they'd have one photo and they'd be like, oh, well, Terry is really click. Foof. Kyle, this new photo would come up. <laughs> what I really appreciate about this episode is um, in a previous episode, we were talking to Carvel Wallace and he was talking about Alex Cabot's like unbridled sexuality in every scene. Yeah, now that he said that, it's all I can see. When Alex Cabot is talking to the perp, when she's talking to the cops, she's like a close talker and a whisper <laughs> talker. And it's like super hot in a way that makes me very uncomfortable because she's saying things that I completely don't agree with, like right. how, how she wants to leave the poor guy in prison mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. But yeah, she was a, she was really a force in these initial episodes in which she appeared. And I agree with Carvel. She's a sex pot. Okay, June, what's your take on Alex Cabot? I find her rather cold. I mean, you're right. And Carvel is right. She is a sex pot. She's constantly smoldering. But I don't know. There's something about it's like I appreciate the way that Liv has everything compartmentalized, but Stephanie March's version of compartmentalizing the world and her job and and the world of crime just seems like I don't get like, is it like she, she has to be here another half hour to like get her billing or to, you know, before she can leave? It just seems like she has no enthusiasm for anything. She seems constantly like in a state of low level rage and aggravation. Yeah. And she, she always looks to me like, She's going to leave work, go to the stable, put on her britches and like hop on her pony. Right. Like yes. it's almost it's, it's like it's like the Ivy League grad who this is like one of the boxes she's checking in her career. Yes. I yes. agree with that. And that's how I always thought of her. But now I'm also seeing that she's also an unbridled sex pot in pretty much every scene that she's in. And that that's a revelation to me. It's new. It's not something I had noticed before. I thought you were going to mention the thing that really struck me at a certain point in this episode was like the inventiveness of their names. There's Bo and Siobhan, which I'm sorry, those two names are not from like the same historical <laughs> record, you know? That's right. Yeah. They, they don't go together. <laughs> and then then Kyle, who, you know, previously, you know, taken the, the, the clerk's name, he had this bizarrely beautifully mellifluous and, and onomat- not onomatopoeic, but it was like it had this real like resonance to it. But again, sorry, he's your cousin? Like, why is he from a completely different ethnic stream? <laughs> it was, But it was also like, yeah, points for inventiveness, however. It's true. And every time there's a character named Siobhan, I'm like, okay, are we going to write that down phonetically? Or are we just going <laughs> to... <laughs> because it is a complicated Celtic name, right? It's like yeah. not easy to pronounce. It doesn't sound like one. Not easy to but spell. When you're, when you're writing a script uh, summarizing an episode, <laughs> Microsoft tells you uh, several times when you get it wrong. <laughs> now, look, I know this is all part of the family scam, but mm. why the hell are they still staying in that hotel? <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're beaten and raped and everyone was frightened. And would you like a scone detective? <laughs> would you like an upgraded pillow, perhaps? <laughs> that was such a confusing, like, this New York hotel that has this kind of weird roof garden. Well, what was that? That yeah. was so confusing and, and strange, but kind of desirable. I wanted to go and have breakfast on, like, some weird roof myself. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have security cameras on the third floor, but they did have that roof garden. <laughs> 
and it's, it's new, so so no nasty uh, stains there yet. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, it looks like they have officially run out of detectives if they need Craig and to pose as Thorpe's money man. Yeah, that was a really funny. Uh, you, what did you say? It was like the the worst disguise ever. Where it's like even <laughs> when he says back to the camera, you're like, oh, that's Craigan. What is he doing in this scene? <laughs> The best part about that whole scenario in the insurance company, though, is the secretary, I'm not quite sure what her role was, taking off the small child to the on-site daycare. Like, my God, that's the most progressive company, an on-site daycare? My well, it's God. bullshit. You know that she took her out and gave her right to a cop. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, Mommy and Daddy are about to get arrested, so we need to take you into protective custody. You're going into the system, kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing that was so great about that scam was Siobhan's total inability to be cool about the fact that she was about to get $2 million and her getting the yacht catalog and putting post-its <laughs> on the God. pages. She obviously doesn't know how much stuff costs. <laughs> a, she doesn't know how much stuff costs, but B, like, keep it on the down low, girl. You're, you're trying to scam someone for a few million dollars. You don't want to leave the Cartier watch magazine with post-it notes, you know, connoting, like, what pages that you're going to order from just sitting right there when the detective is walking around your room. That was exactly. insane. And you don't need that speedboat in West Carolina. Yeah, and you know what? It, when the detective knocks on your door, if you do have those catalogs for some reason, put them in a drawer. <laughs> it's a five-star hotel. They have drawers. Yes. <laughs> put it underneath that Bible thing that's always in the door. <laughs> yes. But I still think about Craig and you know, going undercover, and I think he could have had a better suit. No, he can't. He's Craigan. Well, no, I mean he's supposed to be. <laughs> he's supposed to be like the, the the top financier that has to sign off on this check. Listen, if Joseph A. Banks is good got enough a for him, if Ice T's got a better suit on than he does, I think Ice T's wardrobe must be contractual. I've really, you know, <laughs> come to realize that. Like, at some point when he like was deciding to be on the show, he's like, "Here's what I need." <laughs> <laughs> Looks like someone's got a bespoke wardrobe. You know, it's yeah. like he he's definitely the only person who dresses that way. Although in the current episodes, he's calmed down a lot. And now it's Rolis Barza who has the ridiculously, obscenely, <laughs> fantastic and bespoke wardrobe. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. A tie and suit, like mixed pattern mm. combinations. Incredible. Exactly. The lapeled like, waistcoats. Yum. Like Malibu Barba. <laughs> Oh, Jenna Lamia. Okay. Let's talk about her for a second. She's the one who plays Siobhan. She does a great job, like you say, of switching it up from this impressionable girl who we think has gotten pulled into a scam to the head con. So, Rebecca, do you think that, like, she really pulls that off well? Oh, yeah. Actually, I thought she was great. This is an example of, like, sometimes they cast, like, victims or perps that are just, like, there. This was a hard part to play, and she sold it. She reminded me a lot of, and I'm sorry I don't know the actress's name, but uh, she was on True Blood, and then she comes in SVU in later seasons playing Rollins' sister, who's also, like, a grifter con artist. And, And this whole time I was thinking, like, if this episode took place now, like, that's who would play this girl, that sort of ability to switch from, like, gammon, victim, to clear, like, evil psychopath. I don't know. I thought she was great. And frankly, when I see someone on the show who's that good, I'm always surprised that, like, I've never seen them in anything else. But I don't think I've ever seen this actress in, any, in anything else. Have I? Uh, you have not. <laughs> Although wait, I think wait, wait, you... She's not dead. Or no, 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 no. She's <laughs> okay. not dead. Okay. But you may have heard her because she has actually now a very good career as an audio book uh, reader. Really? Yeah. Oh. And she's done some big stuff The help. Um, I think she did Girl from a Train. Girl on a Train. Girl on a Train. Is she She's British? 
No, but she's got a, a great skill with with, with accents, did, uh, like uh, you know, like she she demonstrated in this episode. She, so, so she's good with accents. She's like the anti Nicole Kidman. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she can actually get it done. <laughs> now, June, like she really has to sell it. Otherwise, we in the audience, you know, we're going to see through the con immediately, right? Right, right. And one thing that I thought was either brilliant or coincidental, or they made the best of a bad situation. Clearly, when you're watching television and you're seeing people who are supposed to be young, especially if they're supposed to be teenagers, you know, you're always like, oh, she's more like 35. Oh, she's whatever. Mm -hmm. And in this one, they actually made a thing where she's saying she's 17, but she's actually whatever they said, 23, 25. And when I looked later, she actually was about 25 at the time. But it was either this fantastic acting job where she was playing somebody in their 20-something, playing a teenager and trying to pass as a teenager, or she just wasn't that good. But something about it, like, it kind of set off alarms for me. So I was like, she's not 17. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to give her points for magnificent portrayal. Yeah, yeah. Although they they do write it, so she has to flip, like, way too fast. Like, she she goes from, like, totally playing, like, it was everyone else. And they go, no, we know it was you. She was like, yeah, it was me. Like, there's, there's, like, no, like, turnaround scene. Yeah. Yeah. For a a team of hardened criminals, they're pretty moronic about just rolling over and making (laughs) statements. True. Yeah, going up to the Uh, Of course, this judge was saying he wasn't having any flim-flamming. Given your lifelong vocation of flim-flamming, this court is loath to put you on the stand of your co-conspirators' trials. No, no. (laughs) And he used the words flim-flamming, right? Uh Uh (laughs) He should have said it in that, like, old-timey accent that you sometimes do. No flim-flams, right? No flim-flams. You scallywags. (laughs) You lock up you grifters and throw out the key. (laughs) When they find out that poor Russell Ramsey was killed in prison, they kind of seem almost happy about it. <laughs> At this point, they know he didn't do it. They got her, Munch. She played right into it. What are the chances it'll stick? Capital get her allocution testimony in front of the grand jury. No way they won't indict. That's great. John, we got her. Yeah? At what price? And that yeah. just puts a cap on that disturbing storyline in this episode. Yeah. Although, let's, let's give Munch some points because when Cragen, you know, says, John, we got her, and Munch says, yeah, at what price? And, you know, it wasn't like a big button, you know, they didn't really play it up the way they sometimes do. But at least Munch has got some standards and, and got a bit of ethics about it. The rest of them, yeah, they just seem fine with that. Oh, well, a dude died. Well, he was convicted of statutory rape, which, again, on a certain level might have been an attempt to make you think statutory rape, sometimes quite unfair. But no, it, it, they didn't make any of those points. They also like the way that the grifter just got this guy's name just by looking at the sex offenders registry. Again, that could have been a like, hmm, you might want to think about that. That's not such a good system. But they didn't make anything of that. So it's like maybe one or two viewers at some point 17 years later might go wow were they making a point there but for the most point it's just like oh well there you go yeah if you want to find a sex offender (laughs) i guess if they already have a list (laughs) (laughs) and now it's online hey let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode it's time for ripped from the headlines Uh uh-oh you think you know who did it you think you know who did it but you don't know who did it you don't know This episode takes many cues from a 1992 plot to extort money from Walt Disney World in Florida. Wanda Mary Normile claims she was raped, beaten and bound after the resort's Halloween party by a man in a Dracula costume. Disney offered her a $200,000 settlement, but Wanda demanded a $3 million payout. 
Two months later, detectives got a tip Wanda was part of a group of travelling grifters. The man seen in the Dracula costume was actually her brother, James William Burke. She admitted to letting him beat her to make the attack look convincing. She also said she had sex with a man earlier that night to cheat the rape kit. Burke died before he could be convicted. Wanda Normile was sentenced to three and a half years in prison and ordered to pay $24,000 in restitution. Despite the attack being revealed as a hoax, controversy surrounded the way Walt Disney World handled the initial call. Internal security waited 30 minutes before contacting local authorities. Since the scandal, emergency calls are no longer routed to resort staff and instead go directly to the police. Wow. Did he say cheat the rape kit? Yes. <laughs> you know, I can think of a lot of tests that you might like want to do something to like get a little bit of a better result on. I don't yeah. know, chewing parsley before a breathalyzer, whatever, but like cheating the rape kit, that is not an expression I have ever thought would ever come out of somebody's mouth. Well, you got to have something. But also like why would anybody buy that there was someone dressed up as Dracula in Walt Disney World? Like that is not it a license. It was Halloween. It was Halloween. Oh, okay. All right. So she was saying like which, a- which is just like the craziest detail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he's probably walking around like with the cape, like half an arm, like over his face. Right. Right. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Strange. You know that story? Which, gosh, I'd never heard of that. That is creepy, but also like wow. Reminded me of a really. Now that you've mentioned and now that you've put in my mind the fact that Alex Cabot is a total sex pot, you remember when Siobhan said to her when they were like, why did you lure him to your room? How did you get him to have sex with you? And she said, honey, no one passes up free sex. And the look on their face was like, that's right. And I just thought, oh, God. I often worry, like with SVU, I had very protective parents. And I often think like, if I had ever watched SVU with my parents, I would never have been let out of the house. (laughs) And I just wonder like how much this affects like overprotective parenting, because there's a lot of stuff on the show that's not only creepy, but also will set off alarms for for people who want to control their kids. Five-star family-friendly hotel? Bullshit! We're not going there. (laughs) (laughs) So these guys really tried to stick it to the mouse, and just like in the show, they would have gotten away with it if they hadn't turned on each other. Yeah, they're a family of grifters. I mean, you never heard about a family of grifters being made of, like, saints, right? There's no, like, (laughs) saint grifters. They're always, like, a bunch of scumbags who get together to do a crime together, right? Yeah, yeah. But I got to say, like, being called a grifter, that's such a cool label. I want to kind of, like, see what it's like to be a grifter. I want someone just to call me a grifter. It's a cool name. It sounds cool. I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in that, but I think being a grifter sounds cool. Yeah, we got to stop normalizing this. <laughs> when you go to Thorpe Tower, you you can't be just thinking of how, you know, we can't. No, we got to get on top of that. <laughs> Hashtag resist. Yes. I actually, I do like the idea that in real life there's a band of traveling grifters going from town to town. They're all related in some way. And but they're trying to stick it to the man, which is actually, in a way, like, resist. it would have been more fun if they played up that aspect of it a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. these corporations that don't call the police immediately. Like, what was in this? Like, they put her in the office and they had their private security people dealing with They hinted at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They could have played on that more. And, like, the tension didn't have to be about poor Russell in prison. It could be about, like, the fact that these grifters are sticking it to someone who isn't doing the right thing, like, yeah. a lot of yep. the time. Like, like, you know that Thorpe totally, like, evicted some people from their apartments and probably didn't pay a bunch of his workers when he was building that hotel, right? That is super subtextual. I know, uh, I know. 
I mean, this is a, a five-star family-friendly hotel for the 1%. Why did we not hear more about that? Exactly. Well, they covered it up pretty quick. <laughs> sure did. But, you know, in this real-life story, Walt Disney World isn't so clean because you're right. They definitely have a litigation response team on call like 24 hours a totally, day. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, Although at least they didn't, they it took them two months to try and make a settlement rather than what was it, three days in the case of SVU? <laughs> yeah, we move faster in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Before you leave, yes, we don't want you taking any of the bathrobes. But how about <laughs> we cut you a check instead for ten million dollars? Yeah. For ten million dollars, yes. Yeah. Just walk in here and see the man in the rumpled suit. <laughs> right. He'll take care of it. Well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, June Thomas. June, where can our listeners follow you online? You can find me on Twitter at June Thomas. And Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie, and of course on all the podcasts that I am now on. That's right, both June and Rebecca, Slate Podcasts, they have a whole Empire. slate of podcasts that you'll <laughs> want to check out. <laughs> you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod, or follow us on Instagram at These RTR Stories. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for Criticism and Commentary. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.